The reading is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 18, starting to read at verse 28. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone. The Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken concerning the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. And for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, king of the Jews and they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus. 
But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. How do I resolve this? And what will people think of my decision? Uh, To a greater or lesser extent, such questions confront us all at various times, don't they? These issues certainly got to Pilate. Three times he declared Jesus innocent. And yet, ultimately, it's Pilate who authorised the execution of Jesus. Why didn't he do the right thing? Use his God-given authority and protect the innocent man. And why did the Jewish leaders turn against Jesus and plot to do away with him? The principal characters in the dramatic events of that first Good Friday all had choices to make. And although they probably failed to realize it at the time, their decisions, the choices they made, would have momentous consequences, not only for them personally, but for the entire human race. But whilst both Pilate and the Jewish authorities may think that they are in charge and in control of events, we come to see, I think, that it's really they who are on trial, and the verdict on Jesus is really being given on them, and indeed on each one of us. Now, the Jewish religious authorities were made up of upright, moral, and highly respected religious men. They were deeply concerned for the welfare of the Jewish state, and they were earnestly looking to please God. At the start of John's Gospel, we find them eagerly awaiting God's long-promised King. So when John the Baptist comes, they send to John saying, Are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? Are you the one we're waiting for? Yes, the religious authorities were upright, moral, highly respectable individuals. So just what was it? that motivated the thinking of these outwardly respectable pillars of the institutional state? What was it that led them to do away with Jesus? One passage which gives us a little insight comes in the 11th chapter of John's Gospel, verse 45 of 
Uh, Chapter 11 reads, Many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen Lazarus raised from the dead put their faith in Jesus, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish ruling body. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then Caiaphas, a big cheese in the Jewish hierarchy, pipes up. You know nothing at all. Don't you realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish? So in those unwitting words of prophecy, we see that these upright, outwardly religious and respectable authorities who give the impression that they're looking forward to the work of God and longing for the arrival of his king, aren't at all what they seem to be. When confronted by Jesus, they realize his claims are far bigger than they were expecting, so they find him deeply challenging. He issues a radical challenge to their religious practices. He demands that following him, the Son of God, would mean placing him right at the centre of all their activities, reforming everything under his rule, turning their world upside down. And worse than that, his radical claims are resulting in a growing following, and he seems to pose a real threat to their political and religious status. In fact, he's a far more significant figure than they'd initially realized. And if he goes on like this, why, they're going to see the nation swept away and the temple and everything that they hold dear. And then, of course, he's not one of them, not one of the educated elite. He's just a carpenter's son from lowly Nazareth, so it's socially embarrassing to associate with him. Nicodemus, one of their number, came to see Jesus at night, fearfully, secretly, under cover of darkness, and probably wondering what the other Pharisees might think were they to discover that he'd been to speak to Jesus. And he had a pretty good idea, didn't he? Because elsewhere in John's Gospel, we read that Nicodemus did speak up for Jesus and was asked quite pointedly if he came from Galilee as well. So it's one thing to be engaged in the political and religious leadership of the nation, to be an establishment figure, but to stand up and be a follower of this Jesus and to allow him to reform my whole way of life, indeed just about everything, well, the Jewish leaders don't want his rule and authority that much and certainly not someone from lowly Galilee. And so... Regardless of his innocence and regardless of the compelling evidence supporting his claims, when Jesus actually comes, when people start to respond to his message and to follow him, the immediate concern of the Jewish leaders is for their own position, to maintain the status quo at all costs, as we see in verse 53 of John 11. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. 
And the verdict on their plotting comes in the first verse of our Bible passage in John 18 and verse 28. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews didn't enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Isn't that ironic? There they are, taking elaborate precautions to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, to maintain the ritual activities of the establishment, but as they do so, they're plotting to murder God's Son. And their plot involves the manipulation of the legal process in order to achieve their wretched ends. For all their pious pretense, their pious frauds, as they sit at their top tables, as they meet in their committees, why they hate the truth about Jesus. They want to get rid of him. They want to carry on with their kind of skin surface behavior. They don't want Jesus as their king. And so there they are, busy trying to remain ceremonially clean at the same time as they're plotting murder. Then towards the end of our passage, when Pilate heard this, this is verse 13 of John 19, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. They shouted, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. And their response, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Here are the leaders of God's own people. They're supposed to recognize no other king but God's anointed king, the Messiah. They start John's gospel looking, waiting for God's chosen king. They finish it murdering God's king. We only recognize Caesar. We only recognize the state. They hate God's rule. They chose to preserve the status quo, selling themselves as they snuggled up to the state rulers. And it's a sobering thought, isn't it, to see how the religious establishment can so easily sell itself and betray its core beliefs in the process. Think of the national church in Hitler's Germany or Stalin's Russia or the real temptations for a church to compromise rather than adhere to the truth in the many other countries where Christian persecution is rife today. There may well come a time in our own country when the current trend to disparage and to belittle and marginalize Christian truth will not only continue, but increase our drift towards a secular society. If and when Prince Charles accedes to the throne and head of the established church, he's made it known that he wishes to be the defender of faiths, not the defender of the faith. What will the Anglican Church and indeed the wider Christian community make of such a significant change? Well, it's very easy, I think, to hold this issue at arm's length and to distance it from ourselves. So let me say that as I've tried to get to grips with the attitudes and motives of the Jewish authorities, I felt quite uncomfortable 
because there's undoubtedly a part of me, a part of Robin Thomas, that would much rather not have Jesus rock the boat. I think there's a part of all of us like that, isn't there, that finds it rather embarrassing at times, at that social gathering as we mix with other people, to be known as a Christian, particularly of the evangelical or born-again variety. There's an inbuilt resistance in so many of us to taking the claims of Jesus seriously, of allowing him to transform our lives, our practices, our habits, our very attitudes, the things we hold dear, even our church. So much for the religious authorities. Let's move quickly on now to the secular authorities, in particular to Pilate. In the passage that we read this morning, Pilate had asked Jesus, what is truth? On its own, if we had no further details of the trial, then that question could be taken a couple of ways. We could say that Pilate might be asking a genuine question. He might really want to know what truth is. Or we could decide that Pilate's simply trying to avoid the claims of Jesus. So he's asking the kind of question of today, the postmodernist question. Well, what is truth? We can't possibly know what truth actually is, so how can I accept any particular truth? As with the Jewish authorities, it's probably all too easy to paint Pilate into a corner as an out-and-out charlatan. So what can be said in his defence? Well, Pilate clearly knew that Jesus was innocent. In verse 38 of John 18, Pilate's recorded as saying, I find no basis for a charge against him. Three times during the course of the trial, Pilate repeats that statement, and on each occasion he's howled down by the mob. He actually bothered to try Jesus sensibly and found him to be innocent. And once he conducted the trial, he tried to release Jesus. That's what the business with Barabbas is all about, of course, in verses 38 to 40 of John 18. Take verse 39. It's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? No, release Barabbas, the mob howls. Doubtless to the dismay of an increasingly cornered and desperate Pilate. In the early verses of John 19, Pilate dresses up Jesus and has him flogged, but all of that's in order to try to release him. Let's flog him and see if that will satisfy the Jewish authorities. Throughout these exchanges and the progress of the trial, Pilate is trying to find a means of releasing Jesus. He pleads his innocence. In John 19, verse 12, we read, From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. And again, in verse 15, Shall I crucify your king? Is that really what you want? Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. He tried to release him. He seems to have had a growing sense of respect for Jesus. But the Jewish leaders play a trump card. In verses 7 and 8 of John 19, they're recorded as saying, we have a law. According to this law, he must die. He claims to be the Son of God. Now, to a Jewish ear, to claim 
to be the son of God is blasphemy. To a Roman ear, why, this is some kind of divine man. So Pilate starts to see Jesus in a different light. He has a growing fear. Tell me, where do you really come from? Are you a divine being? I think Pilate could easily be any one of us here this morning. He's far more fair-minded than the religious authorities. He would doubtless concede that Jesus was a rather special person who was clearly innocent and should never have been crucified. Were he alive today, Pilate would doubtless be counted amongst those many thousands who find the Christmas story quite intriguing. The Easter message rather interesting and the church or cathedral service an occasion that speaks to them of something rather special, but who never quite see the significance for them personally. So in the final analysis, when Pilate's job is on the line, and when Pilate's reputation is at stake, he abandons truth. Because the bottom line is that he fears man more than he fears God. It's all there in John 19, verse 12, isn't it? As the Jews play their final trump card and shout at Pilate, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Can you imagine what it must have been like in the Roman court to be called a friend of Caesar? Apparently it was a kind of honorary title. A special place was given to the friend of Caesar. Anybody who contributed to Caesar's coffers immediately became a friend of Caesar. Why, he was one of Caesar's cronies. Those who towed the party line and served the cause, they were friends of Caesar. And so you can imagine what was at stake here as Pilate's accused of not being a friend of Caesar. A place in the upper chamber, Lord Pilate of Judea, special seats in the Gladiators' Champions League for a friend of Caesar. Why, when you walked into the public places in Rome, heads would turn and people would want your opinion if you were a friend of Caesar. You would be someone of real status and importance. The cornered Pilate's mind must have been racing. How could he get out of this dilemma with reputation intact and justice done? One can imagine the thoughts running through his head. If you side openly and publicly with this man, Jesus, everything you've worked for all your life is on the line. If you side with Jesus, the media in Rome is going to pillory you. Just think of the tabloid headlines. You'll be known as the man who never quite made it. You know that if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. And your whole future's at stake as well. Anyone who claims to be a king is Caesar's rival. And so if you let Jesus go, you'll be siding with the opposition, which will mean that you'll probably lose your job and be sent back to Rome in disgrace. So in putting Jesus to death, Pilate showed that when the chips were really down, he feared man more than he feared God. He sat on the fence. He tried to please everybody. He knew the truth, but he feared for his career, his future, and his reputation. And so he distanced himself from Jesus and gave the command. And the verdict is there, isn't it? 
Pilate may have asked, what is truth? But in reality, he's not really concerned for truth at all, is he? That apparently deep and philosophical question, oh, what is truth, is really just a front to hide the fact that he loves his career and he values his reputation and he loves this world and all that it has to offer far more than he loves the truth. If he really had wanted to embrace the truth and knowing that Jesus was innocent, he would have seen that justice was done rather than send an innocent man to his death. So once we get to know Pilate, we have to ask ourselves, who's actually on trial? I found myself with a real sense of identification with Pilate, siding openly with Jesus in the office, amongst the wider family, in our daily living, can and often does have an impact on one's reputation, on the way others view us, even on one's career. It can have a real bearing on everything I've worked so hard to achieve, on all that I might think that I deserve if I openly side with Jesus. If, like Pilate, I ultimately reject Jesus, then that choice means that just like Pilate, any questions I might have about truth are really a form of pretense, a smokescreen to hide the fact that I'm really dodging the issue. I'm not really that interested in truth, but I'm far more concerned in preserving my reputation and in following my own wishes and inclinations. And here we are this morning, faced in many ways with the self-same choices that confronted Pilate and the Jewish leaders nearly 2,000 years ago. They're the choices that face each member of the human race. Do we take the claims of Jesus seriously? And if so, how seriously? Many of us here this morning are professing Christians, but just how committed are we? Are there areas of our lives where we are, spiritually speaking, sitting on the fence or limping along between two opinions like the Israelites facing Elijah on Mount Carmel? Perhaps deep down we're aware that a part of our life is in rebellion against God. In our hearts, just as in the heart of Pontius Pilate all those years ago, there are numerous voices clamouring for our attention. There's the voice of self, our carnal, selfish, human self, that tells us that Jesus is our saviour and yet... And yet, if I accept him fully into my life, it might well cost me a great deal, perhaps money, prospects, maybe the respect of family or friends, habits, thoughts, and attitudes which I know deep down to be charming companions in sin, they would have to go. My reputation, my future, my whole life could be affected. And yet deep down there's another voice, the voice of Jesus echoing through the pages of the Bible, down through the centuries, the voice of one who gave up all of heaven's glory and came down to this sordid world of shame and sin for you and for me. He's the one who was spat upon, cruelly scourged, 
until his back was torn to shreds and died in the awful agony of a breaking heart for the fallen human race. He is the one who was wounded and bruised for our sins, of whom the chastisement of our peace was laid. And so I think the question for each one of us here this morning is surely this. Unlike Pilate, will we take our stand with Jesus? Will we commit every part of our lives to him? Will we cling to Jesus for forgiveness and salvation? Jesus presents each one of us with a choice and a challenge, a challenge to wholehearted commitment, to choose whether to follow him or to sit on the fence and effectively decide to shut him out of our lives. We know what the Jewish leaders and Pilate decided in the final analysis when the chips were down. Suddenly, sadly, their decision is still the one made today by so many secular and outwardly religious authorities and by a significant majority of our fellow human beings who choose the way of the world rather than the way mapped out by God's Son. What will be your and my response? Amen.